Give me an A. A. Give me a B. B. Give me a W. W. Go. Always be watching. This week on the world's number one podcast dedicated to the shows that Chris and I have been watching that week, we grab our pom-poms for the new Netflix docuseries Cheer. Dan watched Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of Harley Quinn, and has some thoughts. It's all aboard this week for the Great Australian Train Journeys, and then we cap things off with a brand new sitcom from the Always Sunny in Philadelphia guys, Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. Dumb name, good show. This is Always Be Watching. Strap yourself in and get ready to take flight. We have some deeply held opinions straight after the theme song. Ah, Dan, I didn't realise that show was um, an Always Sunny in Philadelphia spinoff, or I might have cared. I can only tell you so many times, Chris. (laughs) Why don't I listen to you, Dan? This is the question. All right. Well, I'll I'll have to remember to watch it uh, after this after you talk about it this week. Uh, Chris, we should probably introduce this. Uh, mm-hmm. Always be watching. Always be watching podcast. The, we do this every week. It's a podcast. It's about stuff that Dan and I are watching. Imagine that you're one of our friends and that you have met us in a cafe or a, perhaps a bar, and you are discussing with us the things that you've watched on television that week. But you, we can't hear you. You can only hear us. Counterpoint. Let's say that you're a cobbler. You're there cobbling. I don't know what a cobbler does exactly. Fix shoes. It's a shoe person. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say that you're there. You find a guy who's entered your shoe store, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Hey, look, my lace it's snapped in half. What do I do? <laughs> yeah. How do I find a shoe lace?" And he'll take the cobbler. will go to the shelf and grab some laces. This is a true story that's going to take place an hour from now when I go to the cobbler. <laughs> right. Because my shoelace, it snapped in half the other day. Oh, man. But anyway, this guy comes in, looks for a shoelace, and is like, oh, you know, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, I just came from a podcast I was recording, talk about TV opinions. And it's like, I got some TV opinions, and goes back and forth about what I've been watching recently. That's the experience of this podcast, minus shoelaces. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, um, no one's really got anything going on in life anymore, but everyone's watching a lot of TV. So a lot of people have got stuff to talk about when it comes to television. Yeah, so you could listen to pretty much every other person on the planet or you can come here and listen to this podcast where we're doing the exact same thing as everyone really selling it uh the, the thing is though we're um we're, we're good talkers and uh, <laughs> we talk real good <laughs> we talk so good but you know we, we well we do make an effort to um watch some stuff every week we make an effort to watch things and press record, <laughs> press record on the computer system here um you watch a lot more of the things than me dan so i reckon you should kick it off i'm going to ask you what have you been watching Chris Yates, I'm going to talk about the movie Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Can I help you? Why, yes, yes, you can. I'm here to report a terrible crime. And what terrible crime is that? This one. Ah, shit. I told this all wrong. Quick history lesson. This all started when the Joker and I broke up. It was completely mutual. And soon enough, I was back on my feet, ready to embrace the fierce goddess within. Chris Yates, this is a movie that is dividing the internet. And I wouldn't say it's dividing movie audiences, because that's not turning up for us. Right. Um, Can I give you my reference point on this? I think it's something to do with Batman. You are correct. (laughs) Excellent. Yes. Okay, so do you remember back in the 90s, there was the Batman animated series? The very good Batman animated series, yes. Exceptionally good. There was a character in it, it was the Joker's girlfriend, Harley Quinn. Mm. She wore a different outfit at that point than you find her now. Yeah, I don't Uh, don't remember that specifically, but yes, I believe you. She was a regular character in the show. Right. You've certainly seen a cartoon of Harley Quinn in it. I'm sure I have. 
Now, that character, she was more or less just like an animated series character until like the late 90s when they brought her into like the actual Batman comics. Oh, right. And she, she was sort of being used and not really used particularly that well. And there was a time period where they thought I was like these uh, two creators. So it was uh, Amanda Connors and uh, Palmiotti. Um, Frank Palmiotti? Mm. I think that's quite right. Definitely Palmiotti, definitely O'Connor's. Uh, the two of them started playing around with the character a little bit and decided to not necessarily have her in the traditional like animated series outfit, but they started playing around with her as someone who's no longer the Joker's girlfriend and was out there as a single girl being crazy and psychotic on her own sort of terms. Excellent. It's like Mary Tyler Moore, but with chainsaws. <laughs> That's, I was going to make that. I, I knew you were going to say Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. Um, and, does, did this happen a lot where characters were introduced into the uh, cartoon that weren't from the comic books? Look, doesn't really happen a whole lot. Like, obviously, it happens in the other direction because yeah. the TV shows take the source material. And often you'll find that interpretations that you see in movies and TV shows will find their way into the comics after a little bit. Yeah, but sure. it's pretty rare to see characters actually get created for this, you know, for additional media that find their way into the comic. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. an unusual situation. Yeah, at least traditionally in terms of what we think of uh, media. But if you take things back... For example, if you think about the Superman character, things like Kryptonite originated in the radio series. Oh. Jimmy Olsen, I'm pretty sure, was a radio character as well. Wow. Uh, Perry White probably was. Uh, the Daily Planet, I think, came from the radio series. I don't think it was originally part of the comics. Hmm. It was like the Daily Star, I want to say, in the comics originally that it, uh, Clark Kent worked for. So there are definitely, you know, there's no, historical yeah. precedent for it. It's just... Interesting. Yeah, more often than not, it flows the other way. Yeah. So... Uh, there was the Suicide Squad movie a couple of years ago. I vaguely remember it. Yeah. Not particularly that good. Jared Leto was in it. Jared Leto was in it. Uh, the very popular Jared Leto. <laughs> that Joker performance was not well received. <laughs> no. But his girlfriend in it was Margot Robbie playing Harley Quinn. Now, Harley Quinn... So, the character in the comic books, they rejuvenated her a bit. Now, the character just continued on in the comics. But why, where, the story, uh, where the character really got some prominence, where mm-hmm. it came to really uh, enter the mainstream before Suicide Squad came out, was DC licensed a lot of their characters to you know, various clothing brands and stuff around the place. Hot Topic in the US, which is like a, uh, I guess maybe a funkier version of like JJ's in Australia. JJ's, yes. That's probably the way I'm going to like Excellent. it. I like it. I'm not sure that's the best point of comparison, but it's close enough. At least it's one I know what it is. Yeah. And they put Harley Quinn on a whole bunch of t-shirts, like, geared towards, like, tweenish age girls, tween and teen girls. And so, people knew who Harley Quinn was, because she started appearing on t-shirts everywhere. Ah. And she's kind of cool, and sort of wears, like, Hot Topic sort of clothing as well, so it sort of... It worked know, well. It, it was all sort of symbiotic, sync. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, when they made the Suicide Squad movie, Harley Quinn, very popular character in the mainstream as well as in comic books, they're like, let's push her into the Suicide Squad film. She's the one character that everyone really liked from Suicide right. Squad, and the rest of it, no one really cared that much about the movie. Yeah. So when I start talking about spin-offs for the Suicide Squad, or a sequel, it's always going to be Harley Quinn-focused, and not necessarily anything else from those movies. Mm. Although there is a Suicide Squad sequel coming out, but it's been called The Suicide Squad, and it's a sequel in name only, really, and yeah, carrying it through. Great. So, Harley Quinn, the movie they decided to put her in, wasn't a strict Harley Quinn film, Really, they made it another team film, and it's Harley Quinn... Well, Birds of Prey, which is another comic book series from DC. Mm -hmm. Uh, Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. So, this new film is very much focused on Harley Quinn as a character, but it's got a lot of other superhero-type characters around it. Because she's a bad girl. She is not a strict hero by any means. Right. You know, she just gets brought into heroic situations. When it's called of her, she does do the right thing. Mm. 
Well, that's good. Ish. <laughs> Ish. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's, a black, it's, it's not a black and white world. It's, it's all shades of grey. We should remember this. Yeah. And that's absolutely what this film is. Now, Chris, what do you know about the film in terms of the conversation happening around the film? Uh, good question, Dan. I, I have heard... Um, uh, I'm not... You know, I'm, I don't stick my head in the um, Twitter and stuff as much as you do. I like to... Work, you know, keep a bit of sanity about myself. But I have heard people, um, you know, being excited about this as a film with some, um, of course, female uh, lead characters and strong lead characters. And in the superhero world, of course, we're seeing a bit more of that. And that's very good. So that is, I guess, the only thing I have seen um, as far as that conversation goes. Is this what you're alluding to? Well, so that's very much what I was alluding to. So I sat down in the cinema the other day, watched the movie. I went in quite liking the Birds of Prey characters. So you've I've been re- you've familiar with the comics? Read the, I've read a whole bunch of the comics over the years. I quite like them. I was never a regular reader of it, but anytime I've picked up Birds of Prey, like it's always a fun set of characters, and I kind of enjoy the overall setup of it all. Sure. I don't really like Harley Quinn. Okay. As a character, she just kind of irks me, and I've never really cared for her that much. She was kind of fun back in the old Batman animated series when she wasn't the main character. But when she's in the spotlight a bit too much, I don't really sort of jive okay. on that so much. So I sort of came into it with a disadvantage in that it's very much a Harley Quinn movie sure. with other characters sort of circulating through it, despite the fact that the film's got Birds of Prey with Harley. Yep. Right. It's a Harley film. The film, it's fine. Okay. But that's all I can really say about it. Like, I was never really bored during the movie, but I was always very aware of how much time was passing. So, <laughs> like, I, I, like I wasn't bored, but it was just like, yeah, I kind of know where like the eighty-minute mark. Is. There's a great review. I was aware of the passage of time while watching this film. But the thing is that the film itself it was incredibly disjointed as a movie. Okay, like there was, it, it's a big Hollywood film, so there's always that sense of being too many cooks in the kitchen. Sure. So, you know, I was certainly present of that, present about that. But I kind of had sort of two big issues with the movie as it was going on. First of all, you've got an ensemble film and you've got a couple of characters and not so much the Harley Quinn character. I think that she was pretty much fully formed in a Suicide Squad film and that's more or less what you're getting here. So sure. she kind of, it's got the continuity and I think Margot Robbie's performance as her, a character I don't really like that much, but she's, she embodies it like, yeah. remarkably well. So you've got that, but some of the other characters and particularly the Huntress character in it, she's got this sort of mixed thing where from scene to scene, she's kind of got a different perspective in where the character's coming from. Right. And even there's one scene where it's just like they keep cutting to her and then cutting away. And anytime they cut back to her, like she's playing an entirely different version of the character. Right. So for a while, she's like the sort of like gritty sort of hardened, like foot soldier sort of a character. And then it comes back and she's kind of like a sarcastic teenager. And it just doesn't really quite drive well. And as soon as I yeah. noticed that like things were weird about it, like it just really stood out at me. I just couldn't, get past that do you, is it being done deliberately or do you think it's just well I'm not too sure so it's a Hollywood film so like there's always going to be reshoots involved and maybe yeah. it was a pickup shot that was quite different I'm not too sure but the take was definitely yeah, right. not quite in line and so that was really really frustrating me um, but then something else that kind of just really hung on a film is the Twitter conversation that happens around it sure so something I can really escape from the film was that sense of like really hollow feminist jingoism that surrounds the film, like the conversation around the film. Sure. So the film itself comes from a female point of view, and it doesn't really indulge at all in the sort of self-conscious female moments of girl power that we've seen in other films. Remember watching uh, Avengers Endgame? You've seen it? I've seen it. I vaguely remember it. There's this one scene in it, which is really egregious, where you've got these, I think it's like three or four characters, uh, female characters, mm. who come out there for a moment which has been structured purely as a, oh yeah, women, sort of moment. 
Yeah. And they're standing there, but these characters that haven't been lead characters, really, the secondary, third sort of level characters that yeah. we don't have an actual like engagement with. So to see these characters coming out, they're having a big hero moment. It doesn't really mean anything. It's only exist like the scene only exists because of the broader cultural conversation, and it's supposed to elicit this sense of oh yeah, let's support these ladies. But they haven't really. We don't care about them. And perhaps you're doing them a disservice by Absolutely. not by celebrating them when they haven't had the opportunity to actually do the thing that should be what they're getting the thing to do. Exactly, and that leads me to there was a really good piece in Variety this week. It's a, uh, I think she's primarily a uh, reporter, but I think she does like some reviews on the side as well. Uh, Carolyn Framke, who every time I read her stuff, like it's always like fairly smart and insightful. She had this piece and she was talking about the Oscars the other night and the condescending corporate feminism of the Oscars. Sure. So what she started looking at is there was this award that was given away with uh, Brie Larson, Gal Gadot and Sigourney Weaver on stage together. And the three of them were there and it was purely just recreating that Marvel Avengers moment yeah, with these sure. three actresses on stage together. And at one stage, one of them ends up saying, all women are superheroes. Which, that's not true. <laughs> I've met a number of women who are just super villains. <laughs> Uh, yes, all right, I know yeah. what you're saying. So you got that. So anyway, uh, Frankie goes on to start talking about the fact that she found that to be just a moment of sort of like weak platitudes more than anything weak else. Weak platitudes, yes. And so she sure. ends up talking about how that same night you've got the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood production designers, so that's Nancy, Nancy Haig and Barbara Ling. Uh, you've got the producer of Hair Love, which was an animated short, uh, so Karen Rupert Tolliver. And then the thing that kind of I thought was the most exciting of all uh, was seeing the composer of The Joker, oh, sorry, Joker, which we can all agree was the best film of 2019. <laughs> That's I'll, not true. I still haven't seen it. Uh, but the score on it, uh, this, like, there's really good elements about it. Yes, but it's oh, no, not, I'm, I'm not avoiding it. it. I just it's, haven't got there. it's not amazing by any means. Yeah. Uh, but it has a very good score. And it was done by a lady named Hilda Gwenadota. Uh, Gwenadota? It's an Icelandish name. That's me doing my best there. That's close enough for Iceland. It's close enough for the like uh, for the always be watching community. Um, so anyway, she did like this amazing job, and Frankie points out these people were awarded for what they should be awarded for, which is that they're not women; they're just people that did an amazingly good job, and that should be awarded upon itself. Sure. So the fact that you know all women are superheroes just kind of feels really empty when you've got people doing just amazing stuff that are being awarded for, like you know surrounding that empty platitude. Yeah. So anyway, I'm thinking about like all of these things while I was sitting there watching Birds of Prey. And the film itself isn't like egregiously like guilty of any of this. The film itself, like while there's a few moments that skate a little bit close to this kind of thing, like it's actually really cool. It's these women who are just taking control of, you know, their own destiny and you know yeah. that. But the conversation around it, okay, yeah. kind of just like kills the movie for me a little bit. And it was just really hard actually divorcing the film from that conversation around it. Because I want to be able to celebrate the film for what it is. But it's hard to do that because you've got well, this conversation. My advice to you, Dan, get <laughs> yeah. off Twitter. No, well, no, I know what you're you saying. Even, like, it's not even just the Twitter thing. Like, this is a broader cultural. Yeah, I know what issue. you're saying. It just suffocates the movie. I find it. Uh, like, I, I genuinely pay zero attention to things that are coming out as far as films go and stuff because I really don't want to have that. Um, you know, because I guess I'm interested in other things as well. So it's not like my, my the one thing I go to, I go to when I want to read something about entertainment. But um, you know, it's absolutely I, I can't explain the difference in the freshness since I stopped paying attention to all that kind of stuff and just started going to films. Like I, you know, the, the biggest um, 
I feel like the conversation so often, uh, whether it, and especially if it's something that's being hyped up as something that's incredible, when maybe it's not incredible and it's just a, like an okay thing that's fun to watch for a little while, yeah. which is totally what this is. Yeah, and then um, and I think that you know I think a similar thing happened with Jojo Rabbit, where um, I didn't know anything <laughs> about Jojo Rabbit. I went and saw it, and I thought it was great. Came out of it thinking, oh yeah, that's a little funny movie, and then uh, there was all, all a lot of stuff written about it, you know, perhaps raising it to this level of importance that was a lot beyond that. And then people go and watch it, and they're like, oh well, it wasn't that good. I'm really disappointed in it now. And I can see how that, uh, you know, so the, the, there's all these different angles to the conversation and how um, that can it can negatively affect your movie. So I say, switch off. Disconnect from everything, Dan. I know you've got to put out a newsletter every day. This is, I can't but, uh, No, no. So, um, yeah, so what's your, what's well, your okay, solution so to this? If, if I stripped away, like, all of the conversation around it... Yeah. Okay, How I'm are like, you going to enjoy stuff again? This is what I'm asking. Oh, no, you can never enjoy anything ever again. <laughs> no, no, the, the way that people talk about culture changes and shifts. Sure. I think at the moment we're very politicised about, you know, very specific sort of causes that people want to champion... And in about two or three years' time, we've got to move on to something else. Like, it's, you know, it's just the way the culture sort of evolves and moves. But if I was to look at this movie and just strip away all of the additional cultural padding that's around it, my thoughts on the film are pretty much this. It's a very average action comedy. I think it's got a couple of wonky character moments. And that's kind of unfortunate in itself in that there's actually some really good character work that happens in the film as well. So, Rosie Perez, who's someone that I haven't paid a lot of attention to in the past, but in the last couple of years, I've seen her in a few things, and she's actually, like, good. She's great, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, like, she's really good in this. Like, she's the standout character and actress in this. Uh, so, she plays Detective uh, Renee Montoya, who's a regular from the comics, and you've right. probably seen her in a few Batman cartoons here and there. Uh, she's probably one of my favorite comic book characters, and she's played her with a fairly different take on this one. So... Uh, Montoya usually isn't as old as Rosie Perez is. You know, that old crone, Rosie Perez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like maybe early 50s, I think. Yeah, I'm not yeah, even yeah. so sure. Uh, but Perez plays her as a tough older woman lesbian cop who's been hardened by a workplace that's always given her very little credit for the very good work that she's done. Sure. Which is, in a lot of ways, very similar to Rosie Perez as an actress. Yes, I would argue, yes, exactly. Yeah, which is crazy. Uh, so, like, I think she's outstanding in it. Uh, but there are some wonky character moments. The comedy in the film, it doesn't always land. There's a few lazy comedic lines that probably needs to be polished up a little bit more than, you know, they had been before they actually pushed the film out. And like para- uh, paraphrasing Purred Happily. Oh, what? Okay. Uh, often the jokes in the film, they're funny because they've got the cadence of a joke. Ah. Mm. Um, you know Purred. I know Purred, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the biggest problem with the movie is that it's built as like this R-rated movie, like US R-rated yeah, movie, yeah, like sure. MA-15. Uh, but the film itself, like, the sophistication of it, it's aimed at, like, 10 to 14-year-old right. girls. And if the film actually played to that audience, I think the film would, like, play gangbusters. And, like, older people could, like, see it for what it is and yeah, yeah. just appreciate that. But, yeah, it just kind of feels like there's these mixed tones that isn't quite that hitting like, the audience yeah, right. Yeah, they do that so often. Like, it's you know, it, that's part of the hangover of still having to make films gritty, right? Still having to have these dark superhero films and... Um, so they have to have these levels of violence, which maybe exclude them from being children's films. A little bit. Mm. Yeah. I, I think there's a fairly sophisticated conversation to take place there that I'm not, I can't be bothered going into. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah. Um, that's got something to do with it. How does it compare to Suicide Squad, the movie? Look, I mean, I don't think it's even really worth comparing the two, right. just purely because I think they're both doing different, so different things. Right. And there's like a character that's a shared. And that's sort of thing. literally all you've like, got in common. Birds of Prey is a better movie than Suicide Squad was. Oh, there you go. That's yeah. what I wanted to hear. Mm. Well, uh, not that I was... <laughs> I, I would also say that the problems with Suicide Squad are probably less complicated than I think the problems with Birds of Prey have, though. Mm. 
in that I think there was just some narrative choices that went askew with Suicide Squad, where it went from what could have been a very sort of, like a cool movie to just being a piece of crap. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so anyway, Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, uh, currently playing in cinemas, but if you're looking for it, it will have a movie name change soon, apparently. Really? Why so there's they... something in the US. I don't know about in Australia. Why are they changing the name of the film? Because nobody wants to see it. Has this ever happened before, that a movie's been changed name in the cinema while it's still playing? I'm not sure in the cinema, so I know that there was that Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow where they took the catchphrase of the movie, which was Live, Die, Repeat. And when it came out on DVD, it was called Live, Die, Repeat. Wow, that was crazy. Mm. Is it any good? It just more is like, great. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, really fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Birds of Prey. So it's just going to be called um, Harley Quinn. Oh, right. Going forward. Yeah. And in part, it's like an SEO thing. But Yeah. Do you yeah. think they should have done that from the get-go? Yeah, probably. Do you think it would have helped it? Yeah. I mean, just the main character in it, so yeah, why yeah, not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it a credibility move to try and name it after the comic? or It's weird. I don't know. It's a bit strange. I like. I think the title of the film is kind of fun. It's a good title, but it doesn't necessarily... Yeah, it doesn't really quite sell. But I think the cultural conversation around it, I think maybe just sort of strangled a little bit of the like, audience that might have turned up for it. Because, mm. yeah, I, again, I think that's unfair because the film isn't really quite that. But it is hard to divorce the film from the conversation and the sense of import that's placed upon it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, I, I especially noticed this with um, regard to uh, you called it c- c- corporate. Um, what'd you say before? Uh, sorry, condescending actually, corporate. Was it a quote from? I, I saw Frankie's line, which uh, her line was condescending, the condescending cor- corporate feminism of the Oscars. I think we've seen that sort of corporate condescending attitude towards um, you know like globalization and corporate. Uh, takeover from a bunch of movies like I've ranted about it before but like you know this whole idea that Warner Brothers can make a and Warner Brothers and Lego can make a movie that's about um, you know dis, you know the, that's about the evil of corporations is is just kind of hilarious and you know I, I, I get that it I appreciate that maybe it is changing the minds of some small children, hopefully, maybe, somehow. I mean, but it in reality, isn't really. It's, like, it's really just like these corporations go- co-opting the message yeah, in order to just buy corporations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you see that across... Well, like, Frankie talks about this in terms of the Oscars, yeah, which yeah. is that you've got at the beginning Steve Martin and uh, Chris Rock coming out, and they tell a few jokes and drop in a few lines about the... They list, like, all the best directors and said, oh, you know what's missing from that? Vaginas. Okay, as though, like, suddenly they're just really woke guys who are just pointing out the discrepancy, like, the, um, you know, the crimes that's being committed effectively by the Academy Awards. But really, they're part of the same system. It's part of the broadcast. (laughs) Yes. It's very, very odd. Also, like, I was noticing, like, Janelle Monae, who I don't actually really know who she is, other than I saw her put in a decent performance with a take on the Mr. Rogers song that I didn't really... It didn't resonate with me. But she was on there and she's performing alongside a whole bunch of other people of colour. And this is the Oscars way of saying, hey, look, we've got a whole bunch of diverse people on stage. But, you know, the films themselves weren't really particularly diverse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look out in the audience and for the first, like, 20 rows, it's usually the people nominated for the movies that are up. So if you've only got sort of very white-orientated movies on stage, the first 20 rows of people in that auditorium are all going to be very white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've got this, like, visually, I'm, like, watching it and there's, like, all these people of colour, like, singing and dancing up on stage to a crowd of just white people and doing it for their entertainment. We've seen that before somewhere. Looks super creepy and no one seems to call that out at all but weird yeah uh yeah it's all very complicated isn't it at the moment yeah so it's like it's these big sort of monoliths trying to like yeah like own these things and point out oh no there's problems with what we're doing it's but you know it's yeah, what you're it. doing yeah 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 um and 
in, in uh, defense of the Oscars, they can only really reward the films that are being made and greenlit and yeah, absolutely. Whatnot. So yeah, there's yeah, always a few sure. like egregious examples of things that maybe should have been nominated that weren't. But when the bulk of things is still you know so disproportionate, like it's hard to necessarily blame the awards. It's the industry and every single person that orders horror that's guilty of this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I've just got one little thing to add to the Oscars. Um, feel free to edit this out later. But uh, I was watching... Um, Hashtag always be watching so white. Go on. I was watching um, uh, the... Uh, I was watching you get excited about... the. Well, I won't say excited, but I was watching you post on the social media about the Oscars and um, I saw... And you had a flex day to watch them at home. Yeah. And then I saw um, our, co- our occasional co-host, Simon, uh, who was... Um, very excited about watching them uh, he had blanked it out for the day and stuff and I was just like I just wish I could be excited about anything anymore as much as you guys are <laughs> as excited about the Academy Awards still after all this time I was taking a day off work um, but anyway we have to move on we do I, I never wind you up but I'm winding you up even though it's me talking no please do I want us to be round up minutes ago Chris Yates you've watched <laughs> stuff as well please tell me what have you been watching I'm going to tell you about the excellent TV show I've been watching on Netflix called Cheer do you want it to look good Yes. I mean, I would hope so, because there's times we've won, and I'm like, eh, I don't really want to watch that again, because I didn't feel like we did our best. The way that we prepare, you keep going until you get it right, and then you keep going until you can't get it wrong. Y'all, breathe for a minute. We're doing it again right now. Stunts need to hit. That was not the last time. It's not the last time until you do it right. These boots are gonna walk all over you. Chris, people are going wild for the show. Yeah, I wasn't across it. I, the reason it came up on my radar is last week... I you saw a picture of a cheerleader? <laughs> no. And you press play? Last week I was um, chatting about the documentary series uh, Hip Hop Evolution that's on Netflix and I was talking about how interesting that was to me and how especially that the sort of Netflix using this, uh, you know, what are we up to, 16 episodes of that show, telling a, you know, telling a story and doing it really, this big long history and you doing it this way. And I was having a, I was having a conversation with my friend Jenna about what I watch and um, she said, uh, she said, oh, you've got to check out the show Cheer that's, that's, that's on. It's the, you know, documentary series about the um, cheerleaders that are uh, the, the, the big national cheerleading competition in America. And it's really similar in that um, it is telling the story in a longer, in a much longer way. You know, using its long format to um, really get into the characters and stuff. And I looked at it, and it was really interesting. The difference, I think, between the two, hip hop evolution, for say, and um, and Chia is that hip hop evolution is using that format to to talk about this, you know, expansive history of music, which has become the dominant kind of cultural force uh, globally, really. Um, but Cheer is using this same similar kind of format as in, you know, 45-minute episodes, although I think there's like 10 of them or something in the first series. But it's actually doing that to focus on something just really niche and small, you know. So it's using that to focus on a really small story that's based around this um, one school, one college in America who are the um, have been dominating the um, the Cheer uh, finals for 14, 15, 16 years to the point where it's become this... It's I think it's Navarro, Texas. Is it in Texas? Yeah, I think that's right. And um, Navarro College in 
Corsicana, Texas. So this has become this little small college, regional college, has become this go-to place for all the kids that go through high school and are like really, really into cheer. And they, you know, this has become the kind of place that they want to go. So it's brought in all this attention to the town. The, the similar way that a town, is a small town, would normally operate that way in America if they had a football team or someone that was really winning. Because you know, we can't compare kind of. Australian sports at school to what it's like in and college sport is what it's like in America. It's insane. Yeah, the scale is entirely it's in, different. It's, a, it's, it's huge. So, you know, that becomes this whole reason to go there. So when you're looking at this, um, you've, you've got this, I don't know how many episodes it is, 10 episodes or something? Oh, six episodes for the first season um, that are all uh, focused on just the kids that are in there at this school at this time and importantly, the coach uh, who is, you know, the, the, the focal point of where it all kind of hangs really. Uh, it's amazing. Like it, it, it sort of shows you the whole. Uh, it, it gets into so much detail and stuff that you wouldn't normally expect, and you wouldn't be able to do in a similar show. Now, the thing I've heard about this is that the show itself doesn't necessarily delve into the private lives of any of the cheerleaders, but really, it's like you, I think that delves into the private life a little bit of the coach and he's finding yeah, out and a little bit. history. But broadly, it's not so much about them as much as it is about their passion and their like engagement in sport. Yeah, it's certainly not what I was fearing it would be, which would be the kind of just like the reality TV style gossip and stuff that you would expect to see and the hookups and all that kind of stuff amongst, yeah. these, amongst these people. It's not that at all. And it really is incredible the way they focused it. But, um, you know, the coach is an incredibly driven expert in what, in what she does and very, um, you know, one of these people that you, what, you see them doing their thing and you realize, oh, yeah, this is one of the people who's clearly the, one of the best people in the world for this. Because they're obviously 100% organized, 100% behind it, dedicated, driven, almost psychotically driven to winning, you know, so it becomes this really, so, so they are as a focus, yeah, you do see a little bit more about them. It gets really interesting politically because it sort of talks about, you know, she sort of talks about how she's, uh, she's conservative, she's from a small town, and then uh, in the same sentences describing herself as a conservative, not very religious, but Christian person in a small town with very conservative values then launches into how she has to um you know how she will defend to the death um the gay people that are in her team which which is you know a a percentage of the male um and i guess female performers as well but um definitely you know in midwestern america she's talking about defending the gay men in her team sort of thing and saying like you know no like i won't let anyone people try to talk shit about them sort of thing and i won't let them because you know she's a she's had a profound uh, real, you know, she's had profound relationships with these people and changed her views there. And then also, you know, um, yeah, like there's a lot of um, black people in the team as well. So she's got this. She doesn't have the same kind of ideas of racism as a lot of what would be expected from conservative yeah. Texans. So it's kind of like she's in this interesting. It's really interesting watching her come to terms with who she is as a kind of like she, she still describes herself as conservative, yet she doesn't exhibit a lot of the beliefs that you would expect straight away from her conservative person in texas at this day and age yeah it's kind of amazing age. when you start engaging with people that are different to yourself these people are just like me yeah but anyway she's a fantastic character she's absolutely uh compelling to watch um now, what's probably worth noting is and because we don't really have a culture of cheerleading in australia yeah not really in the way that they do in the u.s uh you do have a large number of guys involved in it these days yeah yeah absolutely so and, a question I wanted to ask of you, because I still haven't watched the show yet. I've yeah. just heard a bit of conversation around it. Now, obviously, because cheerleader has predominantly been a uh, female-orientated sport, but there is like a large volume of guys coming into it. Um, my understanding is that the guys are usually more there in support roles to the women on the team that, rather than necessarily yeah. being the focal point. 
In terms of the actual documentary itself, like how is that structured? Is it kind of like what you would see watching it from the audience perspective, where it's the women front and center, or are the <coughs> like young guys on these teams as well? Like, no, they're definitely shown. Yeah, and I think um, some of the men probably have, uh, you know, hard, some of them have harder stories. Well, that's not that's not even entirely true. But I guess maybe there's a bit more interest in those perspectives because it isn't the typical thing that you would um, expect. So you haven't heard those stories before. Yeah, so they may be a little bit more interesting. But you know. The stories are all very good. I mean, the thing that you have to remember about this is that it is extremely high skill, incredibly like dangerous sport. You know, like it's really these these small these small children basically are getting yeah. thrown in the air incredibly high and like you know two two stories up sort of thing. And if the people aren't there to catch them, which of course stuff does go wrong, you know, you're going to land on something and you're going to break it, and there's going to be a lot of pain. Um, they talk in this thing and about particularly because the people being thrown up are usually the more frail. Yes, of them. that's right. Like and the then, like really built guy who's throwing them up. He's not the one going up. It's like no, the no, girl it's, who's it's not just it's a deal with it. Yeah, yeah. screaming towards the ground. Like some of it was is is nail biting watching some of it, especially when the tension was kind of building to um. And what I always think is like a little bit crap about this is that we're talking about it being a sport, but unlike every other sport, like. You know, the cheerleaders are there for a basketball game or a football yeah, game yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Like the young, like mostly male athletes who are out there on the field, they've got a potential career ahead of themselves yeah, totally. once they finish high school. So they can go off and become a, you know, million dollar like football player. But like these girls on the cheer squads, they don't have that opportunity. So no, once they graduate high school, like you could maybe go off and do some college cheer, but like that's well, as the, far the, as you can really go. Isn't well, it? the college, this is college cheer. Oh, so, that's college a, cheer. so it's about, so it's kind of like they do it for about, you know, I think they get three years of college is basically after that, that's where it, there's three levels of it. And I think after that's where it's, but you're right, it, yeah. it completely finishes. And then um, the cheerleading that actually does happen at the big um, football and basketball games and stuff, that isn't this kind of cheerleading. Like that mm. is, that is more just you sort of glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, stuff. So all these skills and stuff that they've learned, you know, they can maybe get into dance and they can do that kind of other stuff. But as far as it being a sport, you know, the highest you can get, yeah, is to win this kind of college yeah. Or go off and become a coach where the number of jobs doing that is just... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's really incredible watching all these, um, you know, a lot of them are misfits. A lot of them are, you know, um, people that have come from challenging backgrounds, which is, you know, interesting that people often succeed in those um, when they have come from those kind of uh, backgrounds, if they get the right support. So just sort of seeing the stories of them come through, it's fantastic stuff. I didn't realize there was only six. I must have watched four or five, so I can't have much to go. We're, we're all leading up to the grand final for the year, um, which for at least half the team means is their last ever shot at it. Um, so if you've got injuries that happen and stuff like that, that can be very very upsetting because um, this is this is as you say once once you finish college it's all over so um, there's so much drama there's there's humor in it but the and the characters are just incredibly believable everybody's really you know likable and the way that it's been the way that the story has been dripped out over the six episodes has just been compelling so highly recommended for Cheer on Netflix. Yeah, I'm definitely giving that one a look. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Mm. And I'm really interested. Like again, it just puts up forward this idea. Well, just the the great things that can happen with um, this kind of format for storytelling. And also, you know, I think it's more than a. You know, it it actually takes. I, I really feel like with Cheer, especially, it's taken some of the tropes of you know reality tv in the not the competition based reality tv but more of that sort of like reality tv that we had a few years ago where it was kind of maybe out of school or maybe it's something and you would get to learn the characters and all that kind of stuff but it's just stripped away all the cheese all the cornball clickbait kind of elements to all that and it's really 
just telling a story in a really great way. Like no narration, you know, it's all just being told from the characters' point of views. Yes, fantastic stuff. Yeah, no, I'm super keen to check it out. And I kind of wish I had during the week. <laughs> Sorry, I should have given you a heads up. Um, but that's not how it works. No. Uh, um, Dan, Chris, quickly, what have you asked? Sorry, as I look at the time on the recording, what, have you, what else have you been watching this week? Okay, so I'm actually going to talk about this super quickly because I don't really have a lot to say. Oh, I mean, you haven't seen it. Like, if, if you'd seen it, I think there's probably a lot of stuff we could really go in depth on in this one. But I watched a new TV show that's available on Apple TV Plus called Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet. I'm already laughing. We have Nazis in the game? Kotaku found a guild of 40 or so members who openly profess to playing our game according to fascist principles. Okay, hold on. People use that word to mean anyone who disagrees with them. How can we be sure that these are actual Nazis? Well, they did this with the shovel. Ooh, yeah, those are Nazis. This is not what the shovel is meant for. It was made to murder people. And dig dicks. Oh, they did that too. Oh, wow. Say what you want about Nazis. They are precise. Mm-hmm. Well, that's German engineering. Now, Chris, the name of the show is terrible. <laughs> Once you see the show and you understand what it's about, the name makes all the sense in the world. Right. But even so, like, I feel ridiculous telling you, Chris, you should check out the show <laughs> Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet. I just assumed it was some kind of a dragon show that I'm not interested in. Yeah. And that's totally fair enough, because if it was a dragon show, I probably wouldn't be watching it myself. <laughs> but this is the new comedy from half of the team from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So, Charlie Day and Rob McElhaney? McElhaney? Yeah. (laughs) McElhaney. The two of them are the creators. Uh, Rob stars in the show as well. Uh, The third creative on this is Megan Gans, who has been a fairly successful comedy writer for the last couple of years. Uh, Probably prominence from Community, but she's also been a writer on things like Modern Family and uh, The Last Man on Earth and a couple of other shows here and there as well. Uh, but she's kind of like, she's someone who's pretty much ready to step up to running her own show and being the sole creator. Awesome. And I, from what I understand about this, I think she might be the showrunner on this program as well. I'm not 100% sure though I'm on just, that. Sorry, I'm laughing because I've Googled the show while you're talking about it and, I, and it's got Rickety Cricket in it. So uh, I'm definitely on board. Who's Rickety Cricket? Rickety Cricket is, is one of the worst characters out of, <laughs> one of the most detestable characters. Oh, is that the guy played by David study? Hornsby? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so... So anyway, I'm even more sold than I was a second ago. Sorry, Dan. Most of the people in this, you're probably not really going to know, or they might seem half familiar from having seen something before. So as I said, Rob McLean is uh, the lead uh, lead character in it. But he's not really the lead, because the real lead is an Australian actress named Charlotte Nick... I'm going to say it's pronounced Nick Deo. So she uh, she was in the Josh Thomas show, Please Like Me. Oh, wow. She was also in the movie Camp. Um, so she's been around. She's fantastic in this. Like I'm like crazy for her. I just think she's fantastic. Uh, there's also a bunch of other faces that you'd probably half know. So there's the guy from It's Always Sunny, played by <laughs> David Hornsby. Yep. Uh, Danny Pudi from Community. You know Arbed. Yes, he's in Arbed's this. In he it. plays a complete douchebag in this. He's ah, fantastic. Excellent. So I've seen him in a few things, and outside of Community, he's never really quite worked for me. But in this, I think they've kind of like found a perfect character for him. Excellent. Um, I, he was great in Community, but I felt like they kind of they lent on him way too hard at the end, and his very character much right. went all oh, like his character went terrible. It was a bit sort of, of cutesy in a yeah, Community yeah. kind of a way. Yeah, but um, but I agree, he's fantastic. That's excellent. Um, F. Murray Abraham's in it. Amazing, and he's hilarious in it. Uh, there's a young actor named uh, Alicia Hennig, and he I saw in an episode of Rami a couple of weeks oh, ago, right. and he played the young Rami in an episode that was just <laughs> like outstanding. So seeing him crop up in this in a recurring role was pretty good. 
Uh, there's an actress named Ashley Birch who has done a lot of voice acting and anime work. So if you watched Attack on Titan, you'd have heard her before. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time I've seen her on screen. And then, yeah, there's a bunch of other actors that pop up here and there. Uh, a bunch of great character actors that you'll see in like one or two episodes and sort of disappear. But the premise of the show, which I have not actually given... Uh, it's the Always Sunny Guys, but it's not as, um, like, toxic as that show is. Like, that is a nasty, just brutal <laughs> program in so many ways. This is definitely a little bit more light, but it's still definitely got an undercurrent of just, like, just creepy grossness to it all. Uh, it's set in a video game company, and it's kind of like the sort of company that might make something like Red Dead Redemption, something like that. Yeah. Um, the game that they've made is this game called Mythic Quest, right. and the current version of the game is called Raven's Banquet. Which is where the name of the show comes from. Makes sense. So that's the As game that they make. Right. Yeah. So it's set very much in the world of these video games, which are not just, oh, we've created a video game, pushed it out in the world, but it's about the constant updates that keep on ha- happening in right. these games. Yeah. It's about the ways to introduce sort of financial elements to the game where people have to buy like specific boxes yep. and be able to buy swords and this kind of thing. And this is kind of where the fun of seeing um, Danny Pudi in this, because he's like the PR, like money guy who's responsible for trying to milk as much money out of the players of this game as possible. So he's just like this really just unscrupulous, just awful person. Yeah. So like, he's the money guy. You've got uh, creatives. So Charlotte plays like the lead creative on it. And kind of the show is a battle between her and the money guys to make sure that creative comes out ahead of the financial side of things. And it's very much just about the ethics that take place within... It's the ethics of computer gaming, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. And that's what it is. It's very much just about the idea of uh, these people who are each... They've each got very specific defined roles within an organization. And what are they really trying to achieve? And how does their sort of uh, ambition that they entered this industry with sort of match what they are doing now, 10 years down the line of this very successful game and this um, mini, like, empire that they've built around it? That's so good. I think... um, Like, it's smart and funny. Always Sunny has always been very good at... um commenting on uh, things that are happening conversations that are happening around pop culture and you know they take they take this very kind of as you say gross disgusting attitude towards uh, how they actually make the show but then the the, the producers of the show and Rob and um, uh, his, yeah but I think yeah. they're, they're the main always sunny uh, I think Rob Rob's the main always sunny person, I think. That might be right. I think yeah. he was the main creative kind of force behind the whole thing. And um has done so much like they've they actually do a lot of great activism and stuff as well outside of the show, which is um kind of like hilarious really when you think about it. <laughs> and I think because they came from they've very much brought themselves up. Um you know, obviously they've had a show on FX for is it FX? It's FX. Like, so it's Fox show, but you know yeah. they've had their um, they were they were doing their thing before, and I think that it gave them a bit more power. And I don't know why they've been able to get away with making that show for as long as they have, and why they've been able to get away with some of the things they've campaigned for. But, but um, FX as a network are generally very good with their creatives, where they kind of just let them do their own thing. Right, there's a bit of yeah. arms length stuff to it. There, yeah, well that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so I'm not surprised to see them take up this kind of like, I guess the idea of that was a very toxic conversation happening a few years ago and I guess still does. And yeah. to sort of turn it into this is really cool. And it's interesting. They don't actually really focus on the Gamergate side of things that much, yeah, yeah, which right. I kind of assumed they would like from the outset. But when you get in, it's actually about a lot of the other corrupting influences that are happening within the industry. Right. And you don't even need to really understand much about video games to really sort of get it. I think when you start watching it, it becomes very sort of self-apparent. 
Yeah, cool. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's really interesting. It's nine episodes, but only eight episodes are really the Mythic Quest show. There's an episode like Bang in the Middle, which is uh, set in a different time frame from what we're seeing. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, I won't sort of spoil what's going on there, but it's definitely, it's a really strong character-based episode. And you kind of wish you could see more of what was happening right. in that episode. But yeah, it's just this one-off that kind of changes the direction of the rest of the show as well, while not being connected to it at all. Shush. Um, and so all the episodes are available now? Yep. On day one on Apple TV+. Plus. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. I'm on. I'm on it. I'm going to buy all the Apple things just to watch this show. <laughs> you, you did it to me finally, Apple. It was inevitable. Um, I can be quick too. Chris give, me a, give me a throw. I wish I was quicker than I was. Chris Yates, what have you watched? I have been watching uh, the fantastic show on the SBS Great Australian Train Journeys. Starting in the Oceanside metropolis of Sydney, I'll uncover the stories behind the icons of the city before striking west into the Blue Mountains. I'll then push further into the interior of this vast country and travel 570 miles to the mining city of Broken Hill. Along the way, I'll ride on the world's steepest railway. Looks more like a roller coaster than a train. Now, Chris, is this the same as one of the greatest Australian train, train journeys, which is from Sydney Central Station to Wollongong? Yeah. No, well, funny you should ask that, Dan. Uh, I actually watched this on the train. So that was a fun <laughs> thing to do, watch it on the train. Um, Great British Train Journeys, of course, has been around for a long time. It is uh, a very excellently boring show made for people like me who don't want stuff to happen in their entertainment and just kind of like... I'm the kind of person that likes to sit and stare, Dan. Um, so that's why there's all the police restraining orders. <laughs> um, so Michael, what's his name? Uh, I forget the guy's name. He's very funny. He's very he's a very charming character along the lines of whom you might expect from a BBC program such as um, the uh, Antiques Roadshow or Grand Designs School of Oldie. Uh, not Grand Designs. That's not fair. Um, but definitely Antiques Roadshow. Uh, and he has come to Australia. Now, this was... for tra- can, can I help you back there? Yeah, yeah. Michael Portello. Portello, thank you. Um, for tra- train spotters um, in Australia, this was very interesting because, you know, it's hard to do something like this with nobody noticing you. So, bef- well, long before it was announced, he was actually spotted on a few trains around the place and doing little bits with camera and people were like, oh my God, it's finally coming. And so it finally is. The first episode, interestingly, is the Garn, which is arguably our most impressive um, train line, which is running from Adelaide up to Darwin. And just to give Port a point of clarification here, if you don't really know your Great Australian Railway journeys, uh, so there's a bunch of shows which are, insert name, Australia, yes. like Railway Journeys. But this isn't the same as Slow TV, which went on the Garn for like, was it 20 hours? Something like that. Well, remember. that's what I was going to mention, yeah. So um, yeah, it's not that. It's not Slow TV. This is very much a documentary showing the scenery and stuff from the train, but also giving some information about what's totally. going on. And, yeah, yeah you get, and you get a bit of history about how the train line was built. You get an uh, interview with the people who are keeping the heritage side of it alive, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, people talk on this. <laughs> they do talk. There's a little. There's talking, there's a bit of uh, backwards and forwards, and there's a bit of information. Um, that you wouldn't normally get. This is in no way to disrespect the slow TV uh, movement and that ex- exceptional, the one that, the SBS one, that um, the, that was the first one they did, I think, right? Was so the gun was the first one. It was it was unbelievably impressive. Um, 
So if you you know, and it would be good, nice to follow up maybe after watching the uh, documentary, you'd be able to sit down. I don't know if they still have it available on demand, but they probably should at this point. Um, so we've had two episodes so far. We've had Port Augusta to Darwin, and then we've had Central to Wollongong. No, I'm just kidding. We had Sydney to Broken Hill, which um, I haven't seen yet. But there's, I think there's four altogether. So there's still a couple more to come. But uh, fantastic stuff. If you're a fan of the Great British Railways journeys, then um, you're going to be all over this kind of stuff. Uh, he, he does um, use his uh, 1913 Bradshaw handbook, uh, which is really interesting because there's some of the stuff that gets talked about in that that hasn't happened yet. And I wrote down a funny joke, uh, which was that, oh, yes, it took 100 years from them to complete the garn in, from when they set out starting to do it. Like they, they established that they were going to, get a train line up to Darwin from Port Augustus in South Australia. And by the time that actually happened, it was 100 years later, which is about the same time it took to build the tram in the Sydney CBD. Oh, zing. So, anyway. No, there's lots of great stuff like that in here. Um, there's lots of great There's lots of great trivia. Just like the show, it's all about the journey. It's so good. It's fantastic stuff. So that is on SBS, and it's on, on demand, and the new episodes are coming weekly. Fantastic. <sighs> Imagine how many shows we could do if we just talked like that the whole time and um, not focused in depth on anything. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm going to be honest here. When I heard that you are going to talk about Cheer, I was convinced it was the sitcom with Ted Danson. <laughs> Next term. It's been quite the surprise this episode. Let's get out of here, Chris. I think that's a good idea, Dan. Uh, it's a bit of pleasure. You can um, subscribe to Dan's newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. You can get it at... Uh, Alwaysbewatching.com. Ah, it's back. Excellent. Yeah. Um, In fact, by the time that podcast went out the other week... It was, <laughs> it was already back. back. Yeah, yeah, great. We have a Facebook community called Always Be Watching. We have a Reddit community called Always Be Watching. Dan is on the Twitter at the Dan Barrett, And also um, ABW Watching. And ABW watching and no, no, um, ABW watching, of course. Yes. It's not like ATM machine. And um, that's about it. That's enough, right? Yeah, I think that's it. I have never done that. Uh, the 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 follow up before at the end. Did yeah. I do all right? How do you feel? Mm. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Cheap. I do it better next time. Bit dirty. <laughs> <sighs> Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure has been all yours. I mean, mine. Starting in the oceanside metropolis of Sydney. I'll uncover the stories behind the icons of the city before striking west into the Blue Mountains. I'll then push further into the interior of this vast country and travel 570 miles to the mining city of Broken Hill. Along the way, I'll ride on the world's steepest railway. Looks more like a roller coaster than a train. Get stuck in with the life-saving patrol on Bondi Beach. And travel in style on the transcontinental Indian Pacific Railway. This is uh, all part of my fantasy of living in another age. 